Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Habakkuk. We are wrapping up our teaching series, five weeks, three chapters. This has been Trusting in Troubled Times. We'll be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Joy in Suffering is this weekend's message title. We've been looking through the book of Habakkuk and learning how to trust God in troubled times, whether the troubled times are personal or they are the whole society, whole community. How do you trust God when everything is going wrong? It's the big question. Habakkuk is facing an absolute life disaster. But what's amazing about this is that he is facing it with joy. It took him a little while to get there, though. We could divide the uh, three chapters up something like this. Chapter 1 is faith wavers, and uh, Habakkuk is very perplexed. He uh, complains to God because uh, he's struggling with the depravity and the wickedness and evilness of his society. You remember the story, Josiah the king, who brought unbelievable reformation, revival to his people, and he was killed in battle, and the country goes right back to how they were before. And so he's in turmoil. He's perplexed. He's saying, God, where are you? Do you hear me? What are you up to? And so God answers him and says, yes, I'm up to something. I'm working. And, uh, and this is what I'm doing. And Habakkuk continues to be perplexed because he doesn't understand why would you do that, God? And what he has chosen to do is to bring the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, into Judah and conquer them, enslave them, and scatter them throughout the region. And so chapter 1 is faith wavers. He's perplexed. Chapter 2, faith waits. He begins to gain a whole new perspective as he has this interaction with God. And then chapter 3, faith worships. We have this phenomenal perseverance in his life as he finds his deepest joy in God. So let me ask you this question for us to kind of as a preface before we dive into our study here this morning. When do you and I ordinarily come to the conclusion that God is good? Is it during good times or bad times? Typically good times, isn't it? When we say, oh, God is so good. I mean, don't, do you have a hard time saying God is good when you're going through bad times? That's not very natural for us to do that. So how do you see the goodness of God when everything in your life is going bad? Is that possible? Habakkuk certainly is going to teach us that in the third chapter. How can you have joy in suffering? Is it possible to have joy in suffering? Is that an oxymoron? Is that a contradiction? Most people would give anything to know that. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Would you bow your heads? Take a moment this morning. As you bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm just curious how many would say, boy, I could use joy right now in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my difficulty. Just show of hands real quick. Show of hands. Show of hands. Yep, yep. Hands all over this place. God, you see their hands. More importantly, you know their hearts. You know what they're going through. God, we are here today to meet with you, and we are thankful that you are here to meet with us. Father in heaven, I pray that you would work in every heart in life this morning. God, that you would reveal yourself to us in ways unlike ever before. Those that raise their hand this morning, that are going through difficult times. Teach them, teach all of us how we can have joy in the midst of difficult times. Awaken us to the amazing taste of your goodness 
It far exceeds all pleasures in life, keeping us from, from giving in to temptation. And open our eyes, open our eyes this morning to your greatness that far exceeds all pressures and problems and pain in this life, keeping us from being overwhelmed by trials. Teach us, touch us, transform our lives as we hear from you through the study of your holy word and as we learn the discipline of having joy in suffering for your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at uh, the text here. We're going to read completely through chapter 3, Habakkuk, and then we'll unpack it. We'll work through our notes. Habakkuk chapter 3, starting at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Siganoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. And in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still. Still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows. arrows the heads of his warriors, who, can, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This is the word of the Lord. Joy and suffering. Three things, three big ideas we're going to look at this morning. 
It happens concurrently. Second thing, it's not a feeling but a discipline. And the third thing is what we'll look at is what it produces in our lives. Three things there. So here's the first fill in the blank on your notes. Joy and suffering happens concurrently. It happens concurrently. You'll notice verse 16 there. Keep your Bibles open. Let's dissect that verse just for a moment. Joy happens not after but at the same time of sorrow and grief. We see that in verse 16. Habakkuk's response to all that he has seen, all that God has told him. You notice what he says there, the first part of verse 16? I hear and my body trembles. Literally, the Hebrew means his bowels tremble, his stomach, his gut is trembling. What do you think he's thinking about there? What's going on? Don't think too long about that. I think that he's got something going on deep in his gut. I think that uh, I don't think he'll have to eat bran cereal after this because he's going to be quite regular. That's exactly what he's talking about there. He's got so much turbulence going on in his gut that he's in turmoil. He also says, um, "My lips quiver at the sound." What does that mean? He's crying. So not only does he have a lot of disturbance going on in his gut and his bowels, but he's crying. And then he says, "My legs tremble beneath me." He can hardly walk. And yet, and yet, here's what's interesting. Yet, I will quietly wait. Hebrew, literally, deep peace and poise. (laughs) Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Here he's got all this stuff going on in his life, and yet, in the midst of this, he's got deep peace and poise. So, here's what we got to understand. I mean, is it possible to have joy in the midst of suffering? That's the question. And and this text is telling us, yes, joy and suffering happens concurrently. It happens at the same time. Joy happens not after, but at the same time of sorrow and grief. Rejoicing isn't a, a stiff upper lip, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Come on, suck it up. You can do it. That's not what, what joy is. You can have joy in suffering. In fact, we spent a whole teaching series on this towards the end of 2010 as we headed into 2011. And we were studying through Philippians, which is a book of joy. And um, in that book, we defined the words joy and what they meant. And in fact, many of you probably remember this. So here's a pop quiz. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you here this morning. The opposite of joy isn't sorrow. It's not sorrow. So what is the opposite of joy? Because you can be sorrowful and still have joy. Before you turn to the folks next to you, just hold up for a second. Here, so, so we've talked about this a lot, that you can sorrow. You're going to have sorrow in this world. The Bible's very clear about that, but oh, well, I'll let you go ahead and discuss it, okay? I'm not going to give you the answer. I want you to talk about that. So what's the opposite? If, if the opposite of joy isn't sorrow, what is it? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, you guys get it? How many said, anybody want to yell it out to me? Hopelessness, despair. Got it. Boom. Score. Yeah, it's hopelessness and despair. Because when, when in life, you're going to take some hits. You're going to lose some good things. When you lose good things, you're going to have sorrow. But when those good things have become ultimate things in your life, you're going to have despair. Does that make sense? You're going to have despair. When, when a good thing has become an ultimate thing, it's become your source of identity, your security, your significance, that's when you have despair. The Bible says, the, the Bible says that you, we can have joy in the midst of sorrow. The opposite of joy isn't sorrow, but despair 
in hopelessness. So in verse 16, you've got, he's got all these physiological things happening. He's, in, he's grieving, and yet he has peace and poise. He has a sense of something that undergirds him. He has a hope in his life. Now, okay, here's another question for you. Pop quiz. You can turn to the folks sitting around you and, and kind of work through this. So if the opposite of joy isn't sorrow but despair and hopelessness, the counterfeit for joy, what would be the counterfeit for joy? Thinking that you have the joy that the Bible talks about this, but you really don't. The counterfeit for joy is what? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. Okay, anybody? want to? Happiness, okay. Happiness based on... Happenings, yeah, circumstances. So, yeah, that would be the counterfeit. The counterfeit would that you would find more joy or happiness, whatever you want to call it, in your circumstances or in creation more so than the Creator. That you would delight in creation more than the Creator. And what you've done there is you've done what we often say, uh, what tells us in Romans one you you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and you're worshiping and serving created things more than the creator. So if you think about it, what do you get most excited about? What dominates your thoughts? What do you get most excited about? How do you order your life? If it's something in creation as opposed to the creator and, and, and you're quite delightful, you're having a good time, you've got a lot of joy, then your joy is based on something that's temporal and it's a matter of time, you're going to lose that joy. So if you build your life, so counterfeit joy would be to find greater hope in something in creation rather than the creator. So, it's, it's, so what we have to do is we've got to look. It's great that we have great things, great family, you know, homes and all these other things, but you can't stay focused on that. You can celebrate that. You can enjoy God in that, but if, that, if you lose that, you can still have joy because it's not based on your circumstances or the people or the things of your life. It's based on your relationship with God. In fact, let me take you through some scriptures just to show you how this works throughout scripture. In uh, Job chapter 1, you don't need to turn there unless you want to, but I'm going to walk through these pretty quickly. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Job lo- loses everything. I mean, he's, just, he's, wa- he's knocked sideways. He loses all ten of his kids, and he loses all of his money, all of his wealth, everything. Even, even his ability to, to get income. Now think about that. If you were to lose all of your kids, I know there are some here that have that attend Desert Breeze that have lost kids. And I can tell you this, there's nothing more devastating. He lost all of his kids. And then he lost all of his income, all of his wealth, everything. And this is what it says. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. Now, most people would look at that and go, oh, Job's losing it. He's losing it. If you were looking from a distance, but then it goes on, it says, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So what do we have with Job? We have this grieving. What does it say? Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. There is grief. But in the midst of that grief, there's that sense of hope. Many of you could probably finish uh, this verse, complete this verse. uh, Psalm 23, 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then the fourth verse of that says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will... Fear no evil because you are with me. Think about that. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You can square off with death. That's what he's saying. I can square off with death. Bring it on. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Do you have that kind of a relationship with God? That his presence in your life so overshadows everything. If I have him, I can make it through anything. That's what he's saying. You are with me. That doesn't mean you're not going to be sorrowful. doesn't mean you won't have grief. But you're not going to be in despair. You're not going to be hopeless. And this is what I love about the Christian life. It's not a denial of reality. That's the reason why I said it's not, this whole idea is not a, you know, grit your teeth, stiff, stiff upper lip kind of a thing. It's not that, or denial of reality, but it's in the midst of our reality. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because God is with me. Yes, this is what's going on. This is what the doctor said. Yes, this is what I'm facing. These are all the obstacles in my life. And yet, because I have him, I've got everything I need. That's what he's saying. Now, another verse here. You'll notice I put these in parentheses on your notes. It's meant, I believe that the best commentary for Scripture is Scripture. And uh, so it's just for further reference and and kind of explaining this whole idea that uh, how joy happens, you can have joy in the midst of suffering. And you got examples of this throughout Scripture. Here's a verse of, uh, here's some Scriptures. And I've been uh, to the bedside of many in the hospital many dying and here's a verse that often comes to mind for me God is our refuge and strength this is Psalm 46 1 through 3 God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore so he's a very present help in trouble he's a present help in trouble right now he's here what is your trouble He's a very present help in that trouble. No matter what you're going through. I know some of you are going through real difficult times. You're getting knocked sideways. But he's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, because of this, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. What does that sound like? Sounds like an earthquake. Though its waters roar and foam. Sounds like a tsunami. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So in the midst of difficulties, we grieve and we're sorrowful, and yet we have something that undergirds us, that strengthens us, that gives us hope. Philippians 4.4. You guys probably remember this one if you were with us through the teaching series uh, of through Philippians, Joy to the World. And this is the key verse to all of Philippians. So see if you can complete this verse. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Yeah, so he's saying, how often are we to rejoice in the Lord? Always. No matter what you're going through. So what are you going through? It doesn't matter. He says, you can rejoice in the Lord always. And in fact, he says, hey, let me remind you again. Let me say it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let me say it again. Hey, rejoice. Refocus. Recalibrate. Come on, get your attention back on the Lord. I'm going to teach you how to do that in a minute. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Here's a verse that I've used many times at the gravesite of of many. As I've done the 
done the service there at the gravesite just before they dropped the, the casket down into the, down into the ground. This is just one of the verses that says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. He's talking about those who die, those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What is he saying? He's saying you're going to grieve, but you don't grieve like the world grieves because you have hope. They don't have the hope that we have. So you kind of see how the, the Bible makes that very clear. Here's my last illustration of that. First uh, Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He's wrapping up this uh, first book. And he says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So joy is joy in suffering happens concurrently. So let's do a quick review also of some of the uh, definitions that we were using back during our Philippians series. You've heard me say this many times, so you actually probably have, should have this memorized by now. But joy is what? Joy is a buoyancy based on the pleasures you find in the eternal privileges that you and I have in the person and work, the beauty, the glory, the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ, both his person and work, all that he he has done for us. So can life push you down? Absolutely. It's not going to keep you down because you have a buoyancy, and the buoyancy is based on the pleasures that you find in the eternal privileges. What are some of those eternal privileges? We, we talk about them all the time, but here's a quick one. Romans 8. Read Romans 8, and it'll tell you there's, there's a whole bunch of them there, but here's three that pop out to me right now as I'm thinking that my bad things will work out for my good. Romans 8.28. So that's, that would be an eternal privilege. So it's the pleasure that I find. Hey, this might be bad, but it's going to work for my good and his glory. And another thing, it's one of the songs that we sang, is that nothing can separate us from his love. So the truly good things of my life, the best things of my life cannot be taken from me, his presence. And then another thing, another eternal privilege that we have through Jesus Christ is that the best is yet to come. Read Revelation 21. The best is yet to come. That's just, that's just a few. So it's, it is a buoyancy based on the pleasures I find in the eternal privileges that have been provided for me through Jesus Christ. Here's another working definition that we've used in the past. Is that it is a deep, durable delight in the beauty, glory, splendor of who Jesus is and what he's done. Listen to me, not finished. That ruins you. <laughs> that ruins you for anything else. Do you know him like that? That it just flat out ruins you for anything else in life. That once you've tasted of his goodness, everything else is... It's just, it doesn't taste as good. It doesn't taste as good. When you've encountered his greatness, everything in comparison to him doesn't even come close. So it's a deep, durable delight in the beauty, glory, splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, what he's done, that ruins you for anything else. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of the Savior. Next so how do we do that? How do we kind of get that down in our heart? It's not a feeling, but a discipline. That's number two. So joy and suffering happens concurrently. Is not a feeling, but a discipline. There's some three, four words here. Remind, reflect, uh, rest, and relax. This is what I do. This is what I see Habakkuk doing. 
And so let me walk you through this. When I see my, uh, my emotional meter pegging, you know what I'm talking about? You know, when I have these inordinate emotions, when I'm not responding appropriately to circumstances of my life, I realize that I've overly attached my heart to something and that something is being threatened, blocked, or lost in some way. This is what I got to do. When I find myself struggling with inordinate uh, desires that are beyond my desires for Christ, this is what you've got to do to recalibrate your heart so it is not a feeling, but a discipline. Here's the first thing. Remind yourself of the Lord's past works. That's what Habakkuk is doing in this whole chapter. Habakkuk in chapter 3 is giving us a recapitulation of the Exodus. Won't go through it completely, but for instance, in verses 3 through 4, he's talking about God's presence in the cloud by day, fire by night. Verse 5, he talks about the plagues. Verse 6, he talks about Mount Sinai. And so he's reminding himself of this until he gets to verse 16 where he has peace and poise. You'll notice that I put that, uh, the Lord in capital letters. Anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you've got the word Lord in capital letters, what is it saying as opposed to uh, small letters? What is it talking about? It's important, yeah. Even more so than that, it's talking about the personal name of God, Yahweh. What he's saying, and it is very emphatic, it is very important, because what he's saying, I have a personal relationship with the eternal God. And so it makes a distinction between just calling God God, he's my God, and no, Yahweh, personal. He's my, he's my Lord. I have a relationship with him. And so what he's saying, he's reminding himself of the Lord's past works until... He has this peace and poise. How important is that? Would you think that most of us suffer from short-term, long-term memory loss? (laughs) You can walk out of church and remember the love of God only for a few moments, then you get out of here, and then before long you find yourself acting mean to other drivers. You know what I'm saying? It's, It's interesting how we can so quickly slide into this kind of negative behavior and negative thoughts and all these other things. And we can be in church or we can have a Bible study or we can do any number of things and quickly we forget who it is. I mean, if we could, just for a moment, when we get out of bed and before our feet hit the floor, if we could remind ourselves of who it is that walks through our day with us, it would change everything about that day. And not just, not just that moment, but, but begin to practice that. Have this habitual conscious awareness that God is for me and not against me. Now let me ask you, If you really, really believed that, if you believed what you believed was really real, what difference would that make in your life right now? I'm telling you, it would make all the difference in the world. You have the creator God who gave his life for you. He loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. We don't live in the reality of that though, do we? Short-term, long-term memory loss. That's why he's reminding himself. They're going to get knocked silly. They're going to they're get wiped out. And so he's going back through the Exodus, reminding himself of the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, who he is, what he's done in the past. So he's stirring something up in his heart. Let me talk to you a little bit about this importance of, of remembrance. I gave you some more verses there. In Deuteronomy 8, 11, 14, and 19, 
In fact, it's throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is called the second law. It's what Moses wrote just before the nation of Israel was going into the promised land. They wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. Israelites are going into the promised land, facing pressures of enemies and the pleasure of milk and honey. And this is what he says over and over and over again. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Take care care lest you forget the Lord your God. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Why would he say that? Because we forget the Lord our God. And so he's reminding them of this. Another illustration, 1 Samuel 17, 36. Remember David, young David? He's going to fight Goliath. And they looked at him and they thought, oh, you're too puny, you're too small. And this is what he says, 1 Samuel 17, 36. He says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. <laughs> I love that. It's like, go ahead and make my day. These guys are nothing. This guy is nothing. What is he? Re- he's reminding himself of, of his past victories through the power of God in his life. Here's another example of this idea of memory. Uh, Philippians 3 1. This is what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 2 Peter 1 12 through 13. Peter says this Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Now, he's going through some phenomenal qualities that we have in God. For instance, it says in the third verse of this uh, second book of Peter chapter 1. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us by his glory and goodness. And so he's gone through a number of things here and he says, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. Here's the most important thing I can tell you week in and week out is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most important thing that you can be reminded of each and every day, throughout the day, is to preach the gospel to you. All of who Jesus is and all that he's done for you. And when you begin to preach that to yourself and you begin to rest in that to the degree that you understand that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, you will have the peace of God. Rule your heart and mind. But when you're Heart and mind is not being ruled by peace. It's because you're not understanding the gospel, who it is that walks through your day with you. And man, we need to have that pounded deep into our heart. We need to be reminded of that day in and day out. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. So it's not a feeling, but a discipline. Remind yourself of the Lord's past works. And then reflect on the Lord's beauty and the value to you. And we see that in in verse 18. I mean, he gets down to it and he says, did you notice what he said in verse 17? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine. I mean, he goes through all of these things. He just says, hey, my bank account is zero. Cupboards are zero. Everything is zero. And yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. Notice the capital, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, personal relationship, and then he says it again, twice. He's got to remind himself. He's, he's driving it deep into his heart. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so what is he doing? He goes from reminding 
himself of the Lord's past works to reflecting on the Lord's beauty and the value to him. Let me show you a couple examples of that. Psalm 42. How many are familiar with Psalm 42? Maybe the song that was written from Psalm 42.1 where it says, As the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O Lord. Anybody familiar with that song? Phenomenal song. Well, in Psalm 42, most of you don't realize that although that's an unbelievable, beautiful song, it's talking about some real desperation and longing in the heart of the psalmist. And several times in Psalm 42, and then all the way into Psalm 43, this is what he says. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Do you ever talk to yourself like that? Actually, it's, it's healthy. Because the Bible's teaching us, and he's showing us here, that this is, this is a way of meditation. It's like, why are you so such in turmoil? Why are you struggling? What's going on? And then he says, hope in God. For I shall, again, praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 103 is a great example of this kind of meditation. The writer says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So he's talking to himself. And then he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Come on, soul. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Come on, soul. Bless the Lord. O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. And the rest of the chapter is just reciting the benefits of the Lord. Do you do that? Do you see how important that is? Is that you remind yourself of the Lord's past works, but that you begin to reflect on the Lord's beauty and the value to you. Luke 8, 22 through 25 it's a great story where Jesus tells his disciples to get in the boat. They say, he basically says, hey, let's, we're going to go to the other side. They get in the boat. He falls asleep. Storm gets pretty crazy. And a storm breaks out. And these guys do what? What do they do? They freak out. Yes. Ah. And so then they go wake up Jesus. And Jesus, just in a, in a word, he stills the storm, the wind and the waves. And then they really freak out because they go, whoa, who is this guy? And, uh, and then he says something to them. You guys remember what they, he says specifically in Luke? It really stands out in Luke. And he says, he says, where is your, where's your faith? Where is your faith? You're not remembering. You know who I am, but you're not connecting it to the storm. That's what he's saying. Where's your faith? You're not connecting the dots. You have dismembered your relationship with me from the current circumstances of your life. And we, um, you know, we took communion last week. We're going to take communion again here on Good Friday. And why are we to do communion? We do this in what? In remembrance of him and that idea of remembrance is throughout scripture and that's what this whole idea of remind yourself of the lord's past works but but reflect there's this reconnecting uh on the lord's beauty and the value to you to remember in the bible is to have a life controlling consciousness of something it's to have a life controlling consciousness of the beauty glory of jesus that god is with me he is for me and not against me. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to have a life-controlling consciousness of that. To begin to cultivate this habitual consciousness 
of His presence in your life. To remember in the Bible is to have a life-controlling consciousness of something. It's to bring something that you know in your mind into the very center of your consciousness so that it dominates your thoughts, your feelings, and your behavior. And then, as you begin to do that, in fact, I don't really believe that you've really connected with God until that begins to take place. You're otherwise just kind of going through the motions. You're checking the church box. Not until you know that you have met with God and that you begin to see that He is to be desired more than anything in this world and that He is greater than any problem that you're currently facing. Do you have those moments? It takes me a while to get there sometimes. i got so much noise going on inside me and outside of me. So it takes me a while sometimes to get there. But as I begin to, as I begin to remind myself of, of who God is, Remind yourself of the Lord's past works and then reflect on the Lord's beauty and the value to you. And then I do this until I rest, until you rest in the Lord. Until you rest in the Lord. And we really see this. This is kind of the sequence of this chapter, chapter 3. So he's reciting the Exodus. He works all the way through this. He's in touch with the fact that his body is trembling. His bowels are trembling. His lips are quivering. His rottenness enters his bones, his legs are trembling, and yet he has this peace and poise. And then he, once again, he says, hey, even though the cupboards are bare and the bank account is zero and all these things, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. You see the, the grappling that's going on here? And so until you rest in the Lord and begin to relax your grip on anything you think you can't live without. So there's something that begins to take place that in those moments... Like I said, when I begin to experience this, these inordinate emotions because I've overly attached my heart to something that I think that I can't live without and that something is being threatened, blocked, or lost in some way, I can immediately know that, hey, this isn't just sorrow. I'm kind of in despair here. And so I have to go to that place where I connect with Him and remind myself of the Lord's past works. You don't know how many times I've stressed out over this church. <laughs> you know, sometimes I mean, we've ridden a terrible roller coaster. Back in 2000, 2001, right after 9-11, it was one of the worst years of the, the history of this church. And I remember being so stressed out. And I had to learn during that time, the Lord was teaching me to remind myself of the Lord's past works. And I had a guy that kept telling me, God didn't bring you this far to drop you off into the parking lot. God's still working in your life, man. And I, I needed to hear that. And then I had to reflect on the Lord's beauty and value to me. But I had to do that until I begin to rest in the Lord and begin to relax my grip on what difference does it make what happens in this church? I've got you. What difference does it make whatever may happen in my life? I've got you, God. That's all that matters and I begin to release my grip on those things. Luke 10, 17 through 20. Jesus sent out his disciples, uh, 72 of them, and he gave them power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And you guys remember how they responded? They came back and they were just stoked, man. This is so great, awesome. They came back, they were excited. And they said, Jesus, you're not going to believe what happened. And what does Jesus say? This is what he says to him. This is really interesting. Don't rejoice that demons are subject to you, but that your name is written 
in heaven. Now listen to me. Everyone here rejoices in something. If I were to follow you around, you're rejoicing in something. Every day you're rejoicing in something. And let's say that you're rejoicing in, you know, your family. I would say, don't rejoice in your family. Don't make that your ultimate, is what he's saying. Because things could go south fast. So don't attach your identity on your family or your job or your bank account or your home or car or any number of things. Don't do that. But rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What does, he, what does he mean by that? See, in these days, to have your name engraved meant that you were valuable, famous, had accomplished something. Jesus is saying, stop rejoicing, savoring in the things of this world because as they go, so goes your joy. But savor, reflect, rejoice in the fact that your names, past tense, are already in heaven. I used to... Uh, one of my struggles, I mean, obviously, it's part of my uh, addiction and my workaholism was this church for many years. It still is. It's still what I, it's the bottle that I grab first to medicate myself. I don't grab a bottle. I, I meant, figuratively speaking, this church, okay? Just before somebody runs out of here and says, hey, Pastor Ray drinks pretty heavy when things aren't going well for the church. Uh Fortunately, I've never turned to the bottle because I would be a raging alcoholic. Runs in, I would. It runs in my family big time. And so I became a raging workaholic. And it was a way that I, I managed things. And, and I, the Lord convicted me of this a number of years ago is because I found that I was rejoicing in the fact when our numbers were up and the finances were up, I was rejoicing inordinately. And then I found myself that, that when things weren't up, I was kind of sad. And he was saying, hey, 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 hey. Uh, Ray. He doesn't call me Pastor Ray. He calls me Ray. And uh, sometimes knucklehead. But uh, he says, listen, your name is written in heaven. The cross, I died for you. That's the trump card for anything. Rejoice in what you have in me. That's so much bigger than anything. That so overshadows everything. And uh, he reminded me of that. Another thing that I struggled with there for a while, and we used to have these communication cards. Still do. You, you could put some nasty things on the communication cards. And we'd get nasty things from people on the communication cards from time to time. And it used to drive me batty. You know, people, somebody was kind of like this drive-by shooting. People would come in here, visit us one time and go, well, I don't like the pastor, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. And it used to really bother me. And so I would uh, find out who did that and follow them home. And I wouldn't do that. But it would, it would create turmoil. Because I had overly attached, you know, I was, I was, it was that people, codependency stuff, you know, we all struggle with. And I put too much weight on that. Only to find out later on that we actually had someone on staff that was writing bogus, uh, they were actually writing bogus complaints. And so I fired him right there on the spot when I found out. It's like, you're out of here. No, they finally let me know and they thought it was really funny. But I said, you're going you're gonna to pay for my ulcer now? But actually, it was, it was, what it was what the Lord was speaking to me during that time. Is don't rejoice. Don't rejoice in weather. Because listen, if you're inflated, and I kind of alluded to this a couple of weeks ago, if you're inflated by praise, you're going to be quickly deflated by criticism. Praise, criticism, the cross. Praise, criticism, the cross. Don't you understand that? I died for you. That's what you focus on. That's why I love what Paul says 
in the sixth chapter of Galatians 14, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ through whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Do you understand what he's saying there? None of that stuff holds any glory. I think it's made me actually a better pastor because I haven't put so much glory in the success of what's going on here. Therefore, I mean, which would be extremely unhealthy and it would would cause me to want to become somewhat manipulative and controlling and a number of other things. But my, my identity is in Jesus. Therefore, I can do what he has called me to do. And that's to, to bring the gospel regardless of what people might think or say or whatever letters they might write. It doesn't matter as long as I'm faithful to what he's called me to. And that's what, that's what he's saying here to his disciples. And so, remind yourself of the Lord's past works. Reflect on the Lord's beauty and value to you until you rest in the Lord and begin to relax your grip on anything you think you can't live without. Sometimes, and that's really what I do a lot of times when I go on a vacation. Did you know that that's my focus on a vacation? When I think that things have really gotten a hold of me a little bit too much, I just kind of withdraw for a season and really focus in on Christ and stir up my appetite for Him so that it begins to exceed everything that I'm facing. So what will that produce? Here it is. This is where we'll wrap it up. Verse 19 uh, shows us what this will produce. And it, it is a metaphor that Habakkuk likens joy in suffering to the sure-footedness of a deer treading on high places up in the mountains. Hiking mountains can be very dangerous, there's no doubt. My wife and I like to hike uh, Thunderbird Park a number of years ago. You guys remember the story about her falling? And she split open her knee, and uh, I rescued her and carried her off the mountain. My back's never been the same, but um, I'm kidding. But uh, she, she did major damage. But, I mean, the mountains can be really treacherous. And this is even with trails. And that's the idea here. Is that he's likening suffering like trying to navigate through mountainous territory. But he says that, that when I learn joy in suffering, I become like a deer. Have you ever seen deer run through the mountains? Almost kind of smooth and just without a, without a hesitation. He's giving us just a wonderful picture. Hiking mountains can be very dangerous, and at the same time, the safest place to be to defend against enemies. Whoever possessed the mountains won the battles. So when suffering comes to you, and it will, it will push you up to the heights spiritually. Here's three things it'll do. It will, clear, it will bring clarity in perspective. Clarity in perspective. Suffering forces us out of our temporal into, our, into the eternal. You know, we don't give death much thought until we have a close brush with it or we get that dreaded phone call. So there's something about suffering that pushes us out of the secular, the nowism, into the eternal. What is this life all about kind of questions that we need to ask ourselves. I love the Apostle Paul because I think that he tended to live there. He had a current perspective of eternity. If you were to tell Paul, hey, Paul, Guess what? We're going to throw you in prison. What would he say? To live as Christ. Hey, Paul, we're going to kill you. What would he say? Die as gain. Hey, Paul. In fact, he goes through a lot lot of things that he went through. Paul, you're going to have many imprisonments, countless beatings, and even come near to death a lot of times. What would Paul say? He would say, our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. See, Paul had that eternal kind of perspective. And that's what... What it gives us, it gives us an opportunity. It will produce this clarity in perspective. And in fact, how a person mentally evaluates the events of his life 
That is, his worldview determines how he will think, feel, and respond to those events. It's not the events that determine how you're going to think, feel, and respond. It's, it's your worldview. And your worldview has to do with this clarity and perspective that God gives you through his word. And that has to do with godliness. Godly character. That's your next fill in the blank. Suffering will either make you softer, harder, stronger, or weaker, more empathetic or cynical, more humble or arrogant. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. I love what Charles Swindoll says. He says, the longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. So our response comes out of our worldview. Real quick, I'm almost finished. Turn to the person next to you and tell them the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer. I think that's what, it's, what we're learning here. What's the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? Real quick. Say, <clears throat> so here's the difference as it relates to godly character, as it relates to character in general. A thermostat is this, your behavior is the product of choices based on your biblical values. A thermostat brings its environment with it, where a thermometer does what? It's, it's conditioned, it's based on the circumstances around. It's, the thermometer goes up and down based on the circumstances. And so this is how I put it down in my notes. Thermostat is a behavior, is a product of my choices based on my values. But a thermometer, your behavior, is the product of feelings based on your circumstances. So when you begin to have this clarity and perspective, God begins to develop your character. By the way, the only way that character can really be developed is through suffering. Through suffering. And then this is the best thing about it. This is where we, we end. This closeness to the Lord. It will bring you close to the Lord unlike anything else. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here. There are things that I've experienced in my life. And some of the really tragic things began when I was 12 years old. I lost my grandfather that I was very close to. I had no concept of death whatsoever. My grandfather was taken out of my life. And I, I was awakened one early one morning. We were at a big campsite. And I heard this wailing and screaming only to find out my grandfather had passed away through the night. And I was devastated. And then I've seen a parade of deaths in my family and friends. And have seen it as a pastor over and over again. But I'll tell you what. All the grief, all the pain, all the suffering, I wouldn't trade it for anything because of what it has brought to me in my life. And this closeness with God is totally amazing. There are things that have happened to me that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, but at the same time, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And that's what you get a little bit of a hint of that in Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. He's got this thorn in the flesh, and he's saying, he's crying out. He says, three times I cried out. I don't think it was just consecutive times. I think there was times in his life where I just began to peek out. He he couldn't handle it anymore. And he says, God, take this away from me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then he goes on. This, is, this, this always kind of troubled me, actually. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. I mean, he goes through the whole list. He runs the full gamut. I, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What is he saying? 
This is what I was thinking this last week. It kind of hit me. I really believe, in essence, he's saying no suffering would be too great to endure if it brought me closeness to the Lord. In other words, what he's saying, he's saying, hey, if this brings me, if this suffering brings me close to the Lord, I'll take it. Because the closeness to the Lord so overshadows anything. I want that more than anything. Jesus talked about that in the fifth chapter of, in the Sermon on the Mount, fifth chapter of Matthew. That when you begin to understand this closeness of the Lord, you will be willing to cut your hand off and pluck out your eye. He doesn't say that, to do that literally. But he's saying that you will do whatever. You'll go to extreme measures to eliminate things in your life that will keep you from this closeness with the Lord. Closeness with the Lord. Let me share with you a story. I'm going to invite our band up. We're going to sing that song from Psalm 84 one more time. Let me end on this story. 1851, 1851, an English missionary named Alan Gardner was shipwrecked with a number of other people on a little remote, uninhabited island off the bottom tip of South America. They all died one by one, and he was the last one to be alive before he died. When they found his journal next to his body, and the last entry of the journal cited Psalm 34, verse 10. Psalm 34, verse 10 says this, Young lions do lack and suffer hunger. Now, keep in mind, here's a man dying of hunger. So he says, young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. And the very last thing he wrote in his journal was this. Listen. I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Now, here's a man stranded on an island, far from home, with his body broken, starving of hunger, with all of his hopes and dreams dashed, and his last words are, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Do you know him like that? You can. Can you say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? (laughs) When you know the joy that can be found in Him. You can say that. You're just not singing words. That's for real. That is for real. So where does that take us? Let me end with the statement. It's on the end of your notes here. Habakkuk looks back to the exodus of Israel and is reminded of the works of God reflecting on His beauty until his heart rests in the Lord and relaxes his grip on his idols. You and I can look back to the ultimate exodus, the cross, and reflect on the beauty of our Savior dying for us until we rest in Him and relax our grip on the things we think we cannot live without. See, the cross cross tells us that if He took care of our worst problem, everything else in comparison is a flea bite. When you understand how severe your problem was apart from God and Jesus took care of that, he's going to take care of everything else. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? He'll take care of us. He loves us. Habakkuk, what a great study this has been, hasn't it? It's been a wonderful study as God is wanting to continue to transform our life. We're heading into a brand new study uh, next week. We're going to work through the book of Acts. And so let's finish our time this morning by singing this song. Would you stand with us? I love the way we sang it this morning. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Make that your heart prayer this morning. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look for His wonderful faith and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. How lovely, how lovely is Your dwelling place. Oh Lord Almighty, for my
Better is one day. Better is one day. Better is one day. A thousand times, where must lift it up? Better is one day. Better is one day. Better is one day. A thousand elsewhere in your courts. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts. A thousand elsewhere. Better is one day. Better is one day. Friday, 7 here, Good Friday, and then uh, Sunday, 8, 9, 30, and 11. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. Be satisfied in Him this week. God bless you.